Hey you and welcome to Pillars, here to inspire you with personal stories from LGBTQ people who have overcome their own social, cultural or psychological challenges and use those very personal experiences to motivate their own self-empowerment. I'm Jordan Yediman and I believe that individual self-empowerment is key to strengthening our community. So I want to introduce you to some of our amazing community pillars to hear their stories, learn from their lessons and find out what advice they might have for people in similar circumstances. Let's strengthen the community by empowering individuals because we can't build a home out of broken bricks. We need pillars. When I first spoke with Musa, I made no secret of the fact that I knew very little about Islam, about Oman, or about living as a queer Muslim. And that is why I was so pleased that he agreed to talk to me. Part of me felt embarrassed that I didn't know more about the lives of my neighbours and my colleagues or the people that I see on the street every day I spoke. But Musa was very kind and he explained that he enjoyed how genuine I was by telling him and he handled my questions gracefully. I was excited to learn more about Aman, about Islam and his experience of growing up queer in a Muslim country but also how his perception had changed since moving to the UK. I thought that people like me who had very little opportunity to engage in open conversations about Islam would feel massively enlightened by the conversation but equally I felt that Muslim people, specifically queer Muslims, would be inspired by hearing an openly gay Muslim man sharing his experience of balancing both parts of identity and living a happy and fruitful life. We recorded this at the beginning of Ramadan and I want to thank Musa for giving up his time during such an important time of year for him and for Muslim people worldwide. Due to timing, it worked out that this is going to be released on Eid um, at the end of Ramadan and I can't think of a better way than to celebrate with a wonderfully warm, open, educational conversation with Musa. Eid Mubarak. Well, I'm going to start by saying Ramadan Mubarak. Oh. <laughs> because we're in Ramadan month right now, right? Yeah, so today is day two in the UK, I believe. But back home in Oman, it's day one. Oh, really? Oh, hold on, hold on. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong. Oh, I'm such a bad Muslim. <laughs> uh, it's day two in Oman, it's day three in the UK. Okay, so um, just throwing up some... I mean, we're in, we're in isolation in the middle of the pandemic, so it, mm. is it more challenging for you this time? Um, actually, no, it's the opposite. It's more relaxing this time because part of Ramadan is to become more outgoing, become more, um, you know, like Ramadan culture itself forces you to go out and to, to become more interconnected. And they're like all these special events that happen, like cafes become more festive. And the thing is, when you are in a lockdown, you're kind of, you don't have to do all that. Mm. You, you can just relax and focus on the fasting. Which is a lot better, in my opinion. I just so you're fasting. You're fasting now as well. Yeah. yeah. Even though I wouldn't call myself um, a fasting role model, <laughs> if that makes any sense. At least it was said. Yeah. There, there are days when I skipped, and there are days when I was just not feeling like it. But I think that's also okay. Mm. Um, there's a general concept. There's a general concept that uh, you have to fast whether you like it or not. You have to fast whether you can or not. And one thing I'm surprised is that here in the UK, we got this SMS from the NHS. I don't know if it was filtered and how they filtered it or not, but it says here, uh, this is an NHS no reply SMS. And it says, this Ramadan will be like no other places of worship will, will remain closed. 
and commercial iftars will not take place. Distancing is important to limit the spread of coronavirus. If you have health problems, do not fast. Something like this has not been sent out to people in Oman, even though Oman is a predominantly Muslim country. You know. Yeah, I mean? and that's what I, that's the reason I asked that question because I have I have that text message in my hand. That's why I was asking. I received it from my GP. The challenge I would rather say is more ideological, not not in terms of activities and, and going out. And, and um, the ideological challenge is having the audacity to post something like "Do not fast." You know that that those three words, they can read in a ve- they can read very blasphemously mm-hmm. who, to someone who is very extreme in, in mm-hmm. practice. So I think maybe that's why a message like this has not been sent out to people in Oman back home because the backlash it would receive would cause some sort of social instability. Mm. But at the same time, people already know this without being told, you know mm. what I mean? Like they have chosen not to fast, but without saying it out loud right. to them, saying it out loud is, is like the problem. So is in Amman, cause Amman, I, I mean, in terms of um, Islamic countries, it's quite a progressive country, right? Relatively. Yeah. So how, so how much like, of the teachings of Islam are ingrained in like the culture in Oman? Um, so first of all, in Oman, you have three major sects as opposed to two in most Muslim countries or even in the UK. Like all around the world, when you talk about what are the main groups, what are the main two groups in, in Muslim society, they will tell you Shias or Sunnis. Shias are like, um, they care so much about historic events. Um, they're more attached to the ritualistic side of things and at the same time they're more attached to the to the household of the family of the prophet so his his um his daughter his grandchildren they they regard them very highly these are the shias mm-hmm. majority of them are found in iran and iraq um then you have the sunnis sunnis are are the are, are what most would call the orthodox so basically they are more about the practice and rather rather than the history or the family of the prophets they care more about the the politics behind his teachings both shias and sunnis consider ramadan to be a holy month all 30 days are fasted together the main differences between shias and sunnis are mm. very minor but these minor minor differences have become very politicized recently now in oman you have three sects not two so you have the shias and the sunnis and both of both of which are uh, minorities but by number the majority in oman are a third unknown sect called the ibadis the differences are very minor the differences between the ibadis and the other two is is not big enough to be worthy of tension or or political advantage mm. now how many people are attached can also be um, dependent on the on the sect they belong to and the tribe they belong some tribes are more religious than mm. others sometimes you can ha- you can have a sunni liberal tribe and a shia conservative tribe and the other way around and you can have a shia liberal tribe and an ibadi conservative is that tribe. quite unique to a or is there is something that happens in lots of Islamic countries? Is that why it's considered more progressive? Because it can be interwoven in that way. The existence of a third sect is definitely uh, an advantage to social progressivism in Oman. 
but but the tribal variations is not really part of the progressivism the tribal variation is just a feature of of the country not a wider muslim thing Mm -hmm. the tribal variation can be found in countries like oman uae qatar bahrain kuwait saudi arabia but it's not the same. It doesn't work the same way if you go to countries like Egypt sure. or Iran. Or... So what does progressive mean in Amman then? Like progressive in, in relative terms to what? Okay, so today there are two schools of progressivism. They, they, don't call some, they, call, they don't call themselves that way, but there are two visible schools. One which is uh, locally regarded, re- referred to as Aqlaniyin. Aqlaniyin means rationalism or ration. Yeah, like okay. people who... Um, so they say that we should read the Quran and read the religious text from a rational perspective. And we should, in, we should extrapolate it rationally, not based on uh, supernatural or or something that is um, beyond the physical world. Many of them come from the Ibadi school, but they are very visible. They have infiltrated into the religious institution very well. They have managed to infiltrate to to the religious schools and Mm. um, the Ministry of Religious Affairs, which is the highest governmental institution regarding religion. Uh, so, So that's one movement. That's the that's the Aqlaniyin movement. Some people call them the Quraniyin movement because they only regard they only refer to the Quran but not the prophetic right, sayings. Okay. They claim that they claim that the prophetic sayings were very prone to be faked. Maybe the prophet had not said said them at all. But the but they say that the Quran has not been changed, so we will only refer back to the Quran. Of course, that that makes that creates a lot of tension between people who are on the other extremes. Um, so we'll come back to I, I that. I was thinking, like, what's your understanding of that? Or what is your interpretation of, you know, prophet messages, but also yeah. like the Quran? So when it comes to the prophet messages, prophet's messages, the prophetic messages, we call them hadith. And hadiths have only been collected 200 years after the prophet's death. Okay. And they were collected during the times when new empires were being formed and, and, and pre-existing empires were collapsing. And it was a time when coming up with hadith or collecting hadith was of such political advantage. Many of those hadiths do not talk about living as a good person or, or being kind or being merciful or li- like the Quranic language does. Mm. In, in the contrary, it talks about like, with which foot you should enter a room and which with with which foot you should exit wow, okay and you know these uh, lots of lots of technicalities that are incomprehensible uh technicalities so um even even when it comes to ramadan Do people still like, follow those rules yes uh not for the majority of them because again the hadiths are the hadiths collected by the Shias are different than the hadiths collected by the Sunnis, and they are also different than the hadiths right, collected okay. by the Ibadis. So, and, and then there are common hadiths which are shared amongst the three. Each, each group takes the hadiths that benefits its, its mm. doctrine the, the mm. best. Yeah, this is, this is something that, okay, so, so when I go into schools and we talk about, um, I mean, one of the main questions that we get, like a lot of the schools that I, that I do workshops in around homophobia and transphobia and biphobia is around East London. And um, some of the schools have quite a high Muslim demographic. And a lot of the questions mm. that we get asked is around about what does the Quran say and what does the Prophet say about LGBTQ people? So my 
my my and you, you just said about interpretation that is always my answer because i can only i can only go on what like <laughs> on yeah. the, the, the limited information that yeah. i have which is basically that you know those texts are there to be interpreted and they have been interpreted in certain ways mm. um and i always say if you look for love in those texts and you'll find love if you look for hate then you'll find hate mm. but from a muslim perspective what are the I guess what I'm asking is, what does the Quran say about mm. about queer people? Yes. What does the or what has the Prophet said about queer people, and where's the misinterpretation? Like where, like what's happening there? Mm. With the okay, so there are there are things that the Quran says about queer people. There are things that the Hadith says about queer people. All the things that the Hadith have said about queer people, Hadith means the prophetic messages or the prophetic sayings. Mm-hmm. Um, Everything that has been said through the hadith is weak, is very weak. Um, the strength or a weakness of a hadith is, is determined by the person who collected those hadith. So let's say the most famous collector of hadith is uh, Bukhari, Bukhari or, um, or Muslim. Um, there's a man called Bukhari and a man called Muslim. Um, they were very famous hadith collectors. And when they collected the hadith, of course, that was two centuries after the Prophet's death. It was collected through um, oral narration. So if they were not very trustworthy or if the hadith that was passed down did not sound like the accent or the language of the Prophet himself 200 years ago, then that hadith is regarded as weak. There are hadiths that are very strong and are agreed upon amongst all the three major groups, Sunnis, Shias, and Ibadis. But when it comes to hadiths that talk ill about queer people, all of them are weak hadiths, and all of them do say that they are weak hadiths. Now, the problem is that when you go to extremist uh, Muslim schools, they narrate the hadith, but they don't read the extra bit about how strong is that hadith. Right. They will just leave it there, and then... Yeah, okay. So then, then you... what, what are they... So in those schools, for example, what would they be teaching? What, what would the hadith say, and which bit would be missing that's, being, that's not yeah. being taught? The hadith... For example, there are hadiths that talk about women who who act masculine. Um, okay. I'm just translating it in my head. So, <laughs> God would curse every woman who um, acts masculine and every man who acts feminine. But again, that mm-hmm. hadith is weak. There are there's a very very high chance that the hadith altogether is fake. Mm-hmm. It has never been said. The collector doesn't mention why it's weak but only mentions that it's weak. But there was nothing to say that like a masculine woman would um, be perceived as gay or like less of a mother or less of a woman or, mm. less, you know, childbearing. Is, is that, there's nothing like that. There's no reasoning behind it. It's just a rule which yeah, is yeah. there, right? Or like a, an idea. The, the, the Hadith ha- has normally spoken that language without, without diving into their anatomy. Um, is that something that growing up that you were like kind of taught through family and through, I, I don't know, like how did that feel growing up queer knowing that these like hadiths were there and i was taught that but not because there was a conscious uh knowledge or not because they were conscious about that hadith having to be followed but because that hadith existed as it existed as part of a curriculum and they just wanted Mm. to deliver the curriculum you know so those who taught even those who taught the hadith didn't care much about why they are doing so sure okay um i was I, I remember that hadith coming across when I was in school and thus the religious material that I was taught in school 
were not heavily followed at home because uh, at school we were taught the uh, the modern standard Islam, <laughs> but at home I was practicing um, a Shia um, conservative Islam, which right. which prioritizes different elements of of religion than the ones that I was taught in at school. Mm. So to to my family, religious studies at school was just um, another subject, another curriculum. Like it's not gonna, it's not where I will get my religious knowledge from. I'm just doing it to pass. I would get my religious education from tribal um, school, which I used to go to every Thursday. But then again, in those tribal schools, I didn't, I wasn't taught about sexuality, and I was rather taught about philosophy and mm. things that are more ideological rather than. I remember you saying to me before as well that actually, in some ways, growing up in Amman in a Muslim country, it was in some ways easier for you to be gay or queer because um, you never discussed, or you were, you were never to discuss. Um, sex or um, mm. you know fancying people or being yeah. attraction or anything like that you weren't uh, you weren't discussing that anyway as um, as a Muslim mm. so so you wouldn't ever need to discuss who you fancied so in a way it's like this kind of blissful ignorance which is like how did you address that in yourself like knowing that not only were you unable to discuss mm. <laughs> your attractions or your sexuality but yeah. um, you know just on, on a moral level mm. um, in Islam as well, but also from a, like a, a queer point of view, you went, there's like another level to that. Yeah. So, so the things that made it easier, of course, it, it wasn't all all easy and, and it wasn't <laughs> entirely easy, but there are parts which make it easier. And these this ease is very comparative to, to other cultures. For example, um, in Oman, there is public display of affection between men and and that allows queer people to sort of like hide under like mm. hide hide their true feelings under um it comes across as a social conduct but deep down it can have some intimacy but you never know nobody will ask you about the intimacy um that yeah. makes it easier uh, something you talk else. about holding hands and things, right? And yeah. embracing. Even like kissing in the cheeks, tapping noses. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of touching, and 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 that touching is is nice, and it's widely accepted accepted, and it's, it's it's regarded very highly. Actually, it's not it's not something that only young people do. It's also adults, old older men, and. So you think I should move to Oman then? <laughs> Um, it can get <laughs> awkward for some people. Like, sure. if you're not used to, um, if you're not used to like kissing cheeks every day or like every time you, it it might feel awkward at the beginning. But I told, I told you as well that I went to Marrakesh with my mom and she was like, oh, that you know, there's look, those men are gay there, and I was like, no, mom, they're not. Um, they're not gay. They're just they're friends. Yeah, like, yeah. you should have googled. You should have googled this before you came. Yeah. Uh, but the other bit is also that the whole the whole notion of um, talking about your privacy is so frowned upon, even amongst heterosexual people. So that feels very fair when it comes to myself as a, as a, as a homosexual feeling unable to talk, talk out loud about my experiences. I don't feel any different because neither can they talk out loud about their experiences. In a way, it's unfairly fair, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand what you're saying. It's just such. I mean, I'm just thinking now in terms of like how different this, this, um, 
this culture is here. We're so open and we're so, we're encouraged, especially now, well, not, not when I was growing up actually, but more so now, we are more encouraged to be open and to discuss our feelings and to discuss who we, who we like and who we don't like so that, you know, it's all out there for us to deal with and that kind of thing. Mm. What was your kind of perception? I don't know, I guess, I guess I'm just kind of asking what your perception of like, of us, of the UK and like what we believed and how we mm. perceive sexuality and gender and stuff before you moved here. Did you have a, did you have like a perception or an idea of it? Cause you yeah. went, moved to um, Aberdeen first, right? Yeah, but my perception of it started actually after I moved into the UK because before I come to the UK, I was still not in denial, I was not taking it very actively. I was not thinking of it very seriously. I was just thinking of it as something, it, it's just something in my soul and I will deal with it when the time comes. You know what I mean? I guess the, be- the better way to ask the question would be like, did you know about the, the, about the kind of LGBTQ movement here in the UK before you, and was that like a reason for you moving here? Like, was that a deciding factor? Because from Devon, even moving up to London, it was certainly like a reason I moved here. I was like, yeah, no, it wasn't the main reason for me mm-hmm. moving. It did happen so that where I found my best interest in studies and work was also the place where my best interest for developing my better understanding my sexuality was. Mm-hmm. So, it just happened. It was a coincidence. I want to go back to your earlier question, which was, how did I find it here? Or like, what, what did I think of it here in terms of cultural differences? Yeah. I do agree with you that there is um, excessive openness <laughs> towards um, each other's um, intimate lives. And I think that's beautiful. If people... Uh, that's if nice. people are happy sharing it and people are happy listening, that's that's wonderful. People should go for it. But at the same time, um, I do also. I was like, is there is there a mm. but? Because you did say excessive openness, so I was like, is there a yeah. but? Because you used the word excessive. But go on, I'm interested. Like, who yeah. Would, so who imagine, would, imagine that I've come here in my bubble, right? And my bubble may be big enough to to accept certain norms mm-hmm. and conducts but it's still a bubble it still has um uh, it still has some limit and and now and what i'm not sure is mm-hmm. how much of my privacy should i give out or how much of my or how much or, or how much of other people's privacy should i allow to be told out to me with such Right. Okay. When I hear someone else talking about their their <laughs> I don't know like about their their private intimacies and and they're talking so comfortably, of course I do feel um, flattered that they have trusted me with such information, but at the same time, something in me says like I don't mm. want to hear too much. If I hear more than than what I need. I'm not sure what exactly I'm hearing. Am I hearing instructions mm. about how I should conduct myself in the future? Right, okay. Or am I hearing um am I hearing something wrong that the, am I hearing a complaint? Am I am I being asked for help? Mm. It's not clear to me mm. what I'm what exactly mm. am I hearing now? Do you feel like people are projecting um on you um uh, the way you should be or the way that you, they think you should be living, you know, openly as a queer person or. Yeah. I don't know that that's, that's where it gets very complicated because once it surpasses a certain level of privacy, this is where it becomes ambiguous and unclear. Like what sort of information is it beyond that point? 
Um, of course, from the outside, it's all laughter and fun and games, but I don't hear it that way. Where, where, yeah. where I'm coming. I understand what you mean. Uh, are you able to like what? You, how do you like? How do you manage that? Then are you mm. able to like set boundaries? Are you able to communicate to people? Are you able to like tap out when you've had too much? I'm honestly an oversharer. Firstly, <laughs> I've got ADHD, and secondly, um, I've had to learn to overshare because I was like so shy as a as a kid. Basically, what happened was when I came out, I decided that I was going to tell everyone everything all the bloody time. Uh, so for me, like engaging in those conversations is like literally not an issue. It's actually very empowering for me. But for you, obviously, coming from more, I guess, of a modest or like um, reserved culture, yeah, how do you manage that? Because I'm all guns blazing. I'll tell them everything. <laughs> I don't deal with it. I just sit there and listen and try my best to enjoy the moment. And at the same time, I'm conscious of what I'm hearing. And I'm conscious that there is, that what I'm hearing stems from a different route. Mm. I will do my best to, to just be a good listener and... Um, if there's anything I can learn from it, I will do my best to learn from it. If if I can't, I can't. I'll just. Yeah, is that something that, you, that you've enjoyed, kind of exercising from your, you know, from your upbringing or whatever? I like to think so, um, but I'm not sure how well it would work if 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 my culture were. I'm not saying that my culture is is doing it right, and other cultures are doing it wrong. It's not, it's not like that. It's just the way that I've been brought up doing things or. or working around things might not work mm. it might work for some people for example um there are people who let's say are going through um tension with their families maybe and if they talk about it they will feel a little bit nervous and uncomfortable so when they are in a setting where talking about families considered a privacy they might feel more comfortable so if you're if you're not feeling happy in your life you can talk about why you're not happy but just don't talk about your family relationships don't mention your mother don't mention your father don't mention what your brother did to you don't in the end they are still your, your kins and no matter how much you complain about them to me if I do anything wrong to them, then I expect you to defend them. Right. Th that's how I see it. So. Yeah. Sorry. Is there a way? Is it like? Is there a difference in the way that people practice Islam here in the UK as to how you practice that in at home in Oman? Have you noticed a difference in that culturally? As yeah, well? the or... massive, massive difference. <laughs> massive difference. I I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong, but again. I'm, I've only been in the UK for less than a decade, so it might not be a fair um, image that I'm projecting of, of what I observed. But what I observed so far is a is, is a relatively more uh, more extreme version of Islam than than the one practiced back home. Um, in the UK, very, that is, yeah, yeah, and 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 also it's a very tribal Islam. In 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 the UK, that I felt, sorry, in the UK, I felt that. Islam is like a club and if you're a member mm. of this club uh, then you have certain expectations and, and, and homework to do and maybe maybe the Muslim community in the UK others other people and and at the same time they feel othered as mm. well so like the othering is two-way is both ways and there is there are some bridges of course but these but they are bridges, you know, they are not land. Yeah. But what we have in Oman is more like 
flat land where where communication between Muslims and non-Muslims is just mm. you, you can just walk in and out. It's not a bridge. Do you think that othering, like say, by Muslims, is because of um, a national mothering of Muslims that happens in this country? Like our press is often discussing immigration specifically, a, a lot of the time having like Islamophobic tones. Um, is that would you say that the, this othering that you're talking about of Muslim people or, or by Muslim people is like a, like in response to those kind of messages? I mm. guess. I mean, it's such a hard it's mm. a it's, it's a hard one because for it's it's so strange for me because me and my echo chamber mm. we've spoken and we've learned and we've um, opened our conversations to Muslim people so that we can better understand what it's like as a Muslim person living in. Um, the UK mm. and we we seem to be more progressive and open as I guess it's my generation or my echo chamber so it's strange for me to understand that mm. other people aren't able to think that mm. way or aren't able to be just more open to it but I see it still I still I still see it in certain publications and I still see it on Facebook and you know on Twitter and things would you say that the um, the othering by Muslims is as a result of like Islamophobia or othering of Muslims like in this country? Do you think? Not for the majority. Um, okay. I mean, I do. I do believe that yes, there is some kind of a reaction, but that reaction is, I feel like, is only ten percent or twenty percent of, of the of the bigger picture of the reason why, why why othering exists. Mm. Um, I feel that um, the reaction to Islamophobia is not within the religious community. It's, it's within the political faction of it. And, and the political faction of it is not really what represents the religion or what represents the religious. Co- For example, yeah, I agree. it's not those, it's, it's not the politician, it's not the political faction of it that will come out and represent the Muslim community in the UK in any congregation. But they are the ones who would speak out for them. Has have like is there a difference in the way that you've kind of view or experience different parts of your identity, moving from being a queer person in a Muslim country, moving to London, and being a Muslim person in a progressively queer queer setting? Is there is there is there a difference in the way you have to balance parts of your identity in that way? Yeah, I like to think of it as harnessing both, but there are still major differences. Um, in Oman, for example, or in in the Middle East generally, your gender identity or your sexuality is not sorry, your sexuality is not part of your identity. Identity yeah. to us is a different concept. Mm. Um, I was going to ask you about this as well. You yeah. know, LGBTQ people. Um, here we deal with discrimination in the same way that's why we have mm. the umbrella term queer lgbtq mm. what about in amman is it are you know are all queer people viewed in the same light and dealt with in the same kind of context of discrimination or no um well here's the first uh, there are two parts to it first is identity uh, to us identity is your tribe your religious background and your nationalism right um, the very like like how strong is your nationalism? How strong is your religious affiliation? How strong is your tribalism? That is what constructs your identity. Your sexuality or or any anything else is not part of your identity. Really, it's right. it's part of something else. It okay. is there. It is recognized, but it's not. 
it's not your identity. It's, it's another concept. It comes under another concept. If you go to a queer Amani and ask them to identify themselves, they will be like, uh, oh, um, I'm, I'm a Omani, um, Ibadi from this tribe. And, <laughs> okay. and they will completely forget about saying that I'm also queer. You know? they're, they're just not going to mention it. Mm-hmm. Not that they're mm-hmm. trying to avoid it. They're not trying to avoid it. They're just, it's just mm-hmm. not part of the identity construct to them. I remember my friend telling me that as well once. And he remember him telling me that he had to explain even what gay meant to his mum when he came out because mm. she didn't she didn't understand the concept of being gay because as far as she was concerned mm. it wasn't part of her culture or yeah. she wasn't um she wasn't able to understand it in in Islamic terms because she was just that's the way you know her she was thinking about everything yeah. so he then had to explain things like he you know it, 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 the way he was explaining it was just so you know just he found it very overwhelming I think having to first of all explain what that even yes. meant. Um, uh, yeah, sorry, carry on. I'm just yeah. a little and, and what makes it what makes it more challenging is when you proceed it with I am. So if you say I am gay, the mm-hmm. I am bit is very problematic because this is where identity is being played with or is, is being mm-hmm. deconstructed or reconstructed. And this this is what mm-hmm. this is what imposes fear and nervousness amongst the others who are listening. And it's not the fact that you are into the same sex, or right? it's not that what bothers them. It's that it's the fact that you converted it into an identity. Right. Okay. So that's what I mean. Like, so, so I've just got some like facts here. These tell me if these are wrong or out of date. But like, same sex mm. sexual activity is illegal, and you can be in prison for up to three years. Is that right? Yep. Same sex marriages is not legal. Recognition of same sex couples is not legal. Um, there's no right to change legal gender. Um, in Oman, there's no law against changing legal gender, and this is where it's advantageous for people who are working on it. So that was my so, other question. That's my kind of. That's what my my next question was basically like. Mm. We, I mean, obviously, we're discussing your experience as a gay man, mm. but when it comes to the uh, the LGBTIQ community, yeah. what about trans people or like non-binary people? What's mm. the like consensus, the law, the understanding, mm. the views of trans people, for example? Um, okay, so, so many places to begin from, <laughs> but let's start, let's start from, in Oman, I believe that, not only in Oman, but in the Gulf, I would say, the hate is not uh, directed towards same-sex um partners it's directed towards the femininity or the woman it's anti-womanness not anti-gayness mm, right okay in, in essence mm. when you have if if a gay person comes out and and talks about uh how macho he is or how masculine he is and even if even if he confesses to having had sex with 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 the same sex person mm. He might still be um, he might still be able to some degree he might still be able to maintain his social respect and status and and get out with it safely oh, because okay. in the end it's it's because in the end he expressed his gayness masculinely mm. okay the the problem i feel we have is is anti-womanness not anti-gayness and um it's it's the feminine man who has to 
go through more mm. who has to go who has to endure further hardships it's almost it's almost um well I'm, i mean it is ancient in its in its um theology i was just thinking in terms of like for what well, you know i'm a theater maker so I everything mm. everything i know always goes back to ancient greece but like this is what fascinates me about gender and sexuality is that mm. from through history and from culture to culture and that's why i love having this conversation mm. it's different and I love learning about what it means from culture to culture, time to time, person mm-hmm. to person, religion to religion. Because, for example, in ancient Greece, we know that it was, um, or like penetrating a man was mm. um, an act of um, becoming a man because mm. you went out on a hunting trip and you learned to kill deer. And then you laid on your back and you were penetrated by an elderly, well, not an elderly man, like an elder, an older man. Mm-hmm. And by being penetrated, you learned what the role of the woman was. And because oh. you learned because you learned what the role of the woman was, you therefore understood what it meant to be a man. So homosexual yeah. sex <laughs> was actually a rite of passage in learning what your manliness was, what your manness meant. Mm-hmm. So it's it makes total sense that the teachings of Islam say that, or what you know, of of, of, of your culture, of Muslim culture, mm-hmm. is more about understanding what what it means to be a woman yeah, yeah I, I see the connection here so th- there are some other parts to it as well for example only recently there was um there was a, a masculine uh, female okay what's the word for it who demanded to have uh, her her gender identity changed officially um from her to him uh, and including the name uh, so that his name would become um, mm. a, ma- a man's name, and um, he goes out to work wearing uh, dishdasha, which is the traditional Omani attire for men. Okay. Um, and only recently, I think that was in 2018, uh, he uh, wanted he went to court with a lawyer to to, to document his situation and ask for a sex change um, recognition um, the lawyer the lawyer who was with him at the time wrote a really interesting article about it and when the article came out it was it was very it was very odd like nothing in the Omani media existed similar to, to that article before it was very interesting reading it but it's in Arabic I don't know if I if I get the time to translate or or just go through the details of it with you i would sure um yeah please send it over that'd be cool. i'd yeah. love to read it and at the same time i felt that the social reaction towards it was very sympathetic it wasn't it wasn't hateful it wasn't uh, i felt that there is very there is room for progress when it comes to uh, the right to change your gender identity mm-hmm. officially the room for progress there is is very flexible because there is no law against, yet there is no law for. So there's so much room to maneuver. Mm. Mm. But when it comes to same-sex intimacy, there is a law against, and this is where it becomes more challenging. So, but from what I understand, well, well from what you told me before, and what I've just what I've researched online, those mm. laws are enforced only if it becomes public um, spectacle yeah. or becomes. Yeah. Um, a nuisance for example in, in public, you know if someone finds out mm. is that is that correct yes um it is correct 
but at the same time you can never know how much is enough in order mm-hmm. to in order for it to be to be activated to, to for the law to be activated and i guess that depends on someone's views whether they're more conservative whether they are mm. in one school or one tribe of of islam right uh yes and and it's also regional sometimes you can go to it gets really interesting by the way if you go to very conservative parts of oman the more conservative they are the more likely they are to be okay with certain feminine expressions right okay because to them these feminine expressions amongst men are part of a tradition but if you go to the city and if you go to quote unquote modern parts of oman these parts of Oman are more influenced by by nationalistic agendas. The reason I'm getting excited is because, okay, if you it's it's so okay. So in 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 terms of what, what the, the teachings and in terms of um, the the religion and the culture and stuff, are very different. But what you're saying about um, conservative about conservative people being you know more accepting of those norms, for example, it's very similar over here because when you think about um, very 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 posh or wealthy people for example who are very pompous in the way that they act um how extravagant they are how um you know they act completely over the top and very very camp in ways that like if it was in you know a lower class or working Mm -hmm. class for example or in a specific demographic um if you know, it just wouldn't be accepted or they'd be definitely seen as like the gay person or the queer person or they're too gay, they're too camp. But it seems like the more money you have and the, and the more, the more like posh, basically, essentially, the, 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 the more pompous and the more camp and the more outrageous you can be. And that's absolutely fine because it's just accepted. But the lower down it gets um, or basically anything under that yeah. line, the, suddenly it's a problem. That's why I was yeah, excited when you were saying that. I was like, oh my God, I totally get it. Because like we've had this conversation recently. Uh, yeah, it's exactly the opposite when it comes to, to the Gulf. For example, f- for us, the higher up you go, the more rigid and strict you're expected. Right, okay. and, and, the, and the lower down you are, the, the more freedom mm, you, you have okay. to, to express yourself. I'm just thinking of the royal family and I think like, look how camp those bloody processions and stuff are and the the gold and the the diamonds and the waving the hands and stuff mm. i'm like that's the most camp like the, <laughs> the most super queer like a performance that could possibly ever be like the most wonderful pride parade um and they don't mm. even realize how camp they're being <laughs> but it's the opposite you're saying. yeah it, it's it's very strange like why is it the opposite back from back home because i think that for us the higher up you go, the more responsible you are of mm. representing. Mm. And the, there are, there's a certain image that you're required to represent. So what about the Sultan uh, that, that was previously living? Uh, he was, was he openly gay or was it just like a, a, an idea, like, you know, like an understanding uh, that people thought he was? It was? It was rather an open secret. It wasn't something that was written off or, or, or talked about in the media anywhere. Mm. It was something that people knew, yet people kept it to themselves, and um, and it's and it's also partly because, well, partly because of the privacy issue, like you don't talk about someone else's yeah. privacy, yeah. but also the other part is because of his status as a sultan, and 
much of his work as a sultan, not not as a uh, as a person with intimate life, um, as a sultan, he did a relatively good job compared to other leaders in the region. And for this reason, people sort of accept him for who he is. They like him for who he mm-hmm. is because, regardless of who he, regardless of what he likes to do in his privacy, he has done a good job in in the, in the public sphere. In the, in especially when it comes to diplomatic ties and okay. turning Oman from from a like like from from a poor country into into a country that is building peace and. Uh, hosting negotiations between Iran and the US, Saudi Arabia and Yemen and fixing world problems and this is some this is something that people mm-hmm. feel very proud of uh knowing that their sultan has been has been the one who who, who led all this so when they suddenly recall that oh there are these um, handsome young men in his harem uh who 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 travel with him and who show up in his um, mm-hmm. in his uh, congregations and uh, people know who they are mm-hmm. and what they do but at the same time they feel so much respect for him that sure. has yeah. that respect and that high image done anything for queer people in Amman has it changed people's perspective in a way that's like you know do you know what queer people aren't so bad they are you know they are doing great things has it helped queer communities and queer people in Amman. Mm. Not in the way that you described, because again, it goes back to the identity issue. Uh, they never, right. they never considered queerness as, as as an identity construct. So, whether that person mm. is is a good person or a bad person, it will never have anything to do with with yeah. with his queerness because it's not part of his identity. It might have something to do with his tribe. It might have something right. to do. So, for example, if if you do a good thing and go out in public and people praise you and, and cherish you, they will they will talk very well about your tribe. They will talk very well okay. about your religious affiliation. They will talk very well about your nationalism. For example, oh, because he's a good citizen, he's a good, he's got so much nationalism. He's such a true patriot, or he comes from the Lawati tribe or the Belushi tribe. People from those tribes are very marvelous. Uh, mis- uh, you know, like they're very, yeah, okay. it's a chivalry thing. So um, do you find like living, okay, back to London, like now, do you find living as a Muslim in London, those tribal influences still there or are you having to find your own? No, no. Whilst, whilst in the UK, other Muslims ask me if I'm a Shia or a Sunni and, to me, that is, I mean, I don't say it to their faces, but to me, that's a rude question. Like, Right, okay. And, it, and it's so normal to ask here, like in Oman, you can't go around asking people, are you Shia or Sunni? That's just bad behavior, bad manners, bad question. Mm. You know, like, it's a wrong question. But mm. um, it seems like a normal question to ask here. And again, that's it's also a very British thing. question. That's also a very British question, which that's what, <laughs> that, when you when you say that, that's like uh, that's something that regardless of uh, religion or whatever, it's a very uh, one or the other, you know, like, did you vote leave or remain? Are you Labour or Conservative? Like that. Oh, it just seems like it's like it's always one or the other in this country. You know, are you pro queer or, you know, anti queer? Like. Um, pro-abortion or anti-abortion there's no there's there's not so much room for discussion i mean obviously in progressive circles and again i say about my echo 
especially especially given especially given mm. the way the media perceive mm. Islam in this country um, and um, you know mm. Sharia law, mm. for example. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm again, I'm I may be projecting or being ignorant, but I, I would assume that the way that our media projects it would be there are other Muslim countries that. that do have these questions like publicly addressed every now and then, like. Like, for example, if you go to, um, suppose you go to Iran as a tourist, you're not an Iranian. Um, myself, for example, when I went to Iran, um, I'm an Omani. I, I can look like an Iranian if I, if I just walk amongst them. But when I talk, they instantly know that I'm not from here. Uh, when, they, when they know that I'm from Oman, they would ask me if I'm Shia or Sunni. But it's, not, it's mainly because they're interested in knowing are Omanis mainly Shia or Sunni? And then when I say, well, I'm Shia, but Omanis are mostly Ibadis, they, they start asking these questions. And I, lo- and I love talking about Ibadism, not because I'm one, I'm not, I'm not one, but I love talking about Ibadism because it's such an Omani thing and I feel like it's so unknown to the world and <laughs> everybody talks about Shia and Sunni, but no one even asks about Ibadism. And if they don't ask... I think that's probably actually, probably actually why... I say it's such a British question because I guess in this country we really know we really know Islam through um, Syria, basically any country that's been in a war in our, in our news. Yep, yep. So Oman, for example, I was just thinking about this earlier before I spoke to you that I really didn't even know about Oman until I met someone a few years ago mm. um, because it was never spoken about to me. Bring it, I'm just bringing it up. So maybe that's to me why it sounds like a British question, but you know, I might. I might, I might be wrong. So does that play into the reason why you decided to start London Queer Muslim? Mm. I mean, and what was, you know, where did that come from? The idea to start London Queer Muslims, it came from, uh, it came from a spiritual place to begin with. It didn't come from a mm. cultural or a political or, or an activist place at all. Um, it started from, so, okay, so we talked about Shiism, Ibadism, Sunnism, but then there's also Sufism. Sufism or Sufi people um, are very spiritual Muslims who focus more on the mystical side of, of Islamic practice uh, rather than the orthodoxical side. Um Sufism okay. can interwine with Shiism and Sunnism and Ibadism. So you can be an Ibadi Sufi, Sunni Sufi, uh, Shia Sufi. Okay, nice. Uh, but being a Sufi at the same time is not something that a Sufi person identifies as. The whole point of being Sufi is that it's entirely spiritual it's in your soul it's not something that you identify as it's not a movement it's not like more of a lifestyle thing yes the reason i asked that sorry is because i (laughs) about to constrict myself but i like i consider myself to be buddhist because i i you know i I do Mm. follow a buddhist buddhist practice and i um Mm. chant and i try to live in those terms but i don't see it as a religion Mm. and i Mm. <laughs> this is why it sounds contradictory because I also don't go around being like, "Hey, everyone, I'm a Buddhist," um, <laughs> but I've just told you on a podcast. So, but um, so it, I was just like reflecting. It sounds kind of similar in that way. Yes, you yes. know, I'm not, I'm not gonna, I'm not moving into a monastery, and I'm not shaving my head, mm. and I'm not wearing orange robes. But I, 
but it's a mm. way that I've decided that I, that I feel is, is better suited for my lifestyle, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think in that context, it come it comes across just fine because uh, there are times when you need to 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 spell the word out to make something clear. <laughs> like for example, um, if you talk about uh, Rumi, Rumi is a Sufi saint, but yeah, you told me. If you go and ask Rumi himself, he wouldn't say I'm a Sufi. He would just say I'm a I'm a Sunni or a Shia or something like that. Okay. Um, so um, so th- we we had this uh, Sufi congregation during Ramadan two years ago or three years ago. And during that congregation, many of us uh, many of us identified as queer, and mm. we thought of holding on this congregation every now and like every month. Um, and from then onwards, London Queer Muslims was born. It it was born from uh, a monthly Sufi congregation, and it turned into something like a study workshop. And yeah, and a, and a, and a spiritual congregation as well. So today, London Queer Muslims hosts uh, a monthly Sufi congregation event and a monthly. Uh, study workshop event when I say study workshop it's on a different subject each time so one day it's going to be on climate change one day it's going to be on ethical eating one day it's going to be on uh, fasting Ramadan one day it's going to be on a, a subject that matters to to contemporary Muslims or queer Muslims at the so same why time. is it like what so why I mean we know why but tell me tell me why it's important that w- that you create those spaces for queer Muslims to be able to speak from a queer Muslim perspective as opposed from a queer perspective or a Muslim perspective uh, okay um, I also I had in mind when 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 LQM was founded, I had in mind that there are other similar organizations that are already doing something similar. Like for example, you have Iman; they're very good at uh, social events. Mm-hmm. You have Hidaya, and Hidaya is another organization. Hidaya they're very well, good yeah. at yeah, they're very good at campaigning and and uh, lobbying. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have Naz and Matt Foundation; they're very good at counseling. Naz, yeah. Um, yeah, and you have uh, the Inclusive Mosque Initiative. They're very good with with uh, feminist-led projects. Mm. Um, so, all of them are very good at something. And LQM doesn't want to uh, hijack that. Doesn't want to yeah. uh, overstep what other organizations are doing. What we want to do is do something else and be good at it, exactly as mm. others have been. Uh, what we have been doing and what we've, what we've become good at is um, ishtihad and dhikr. Ishtihad is the um, the study workshops, but it's the name given to our study workshops. Ishtihad is a traditional structured method of understanding and reading into scripture. Okay. Um, it looks like a study workshop, which is why I describe it as such. But then uh, dhikr, dhikr is the name given to the Sufi congregations. Dhikr means mentioning, mentioning God. So I'm really glad you explained this because my next question yeah. was like, can you please go through zikir and... <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah, so dhikr, dhikr is the name given to every Sufi congregation. Uh, Sufism is split into many, many different paths. So you have the Shadri uh, path, the Naqshbandi path. These paths are very cultural. Uh, the Maulawi path. When I say Maulawi path, you would think of the whirling dervishes, the ones who wear the white uh, gowns and 
spin around with their guns spreading in the air. Are you familiar with that image? Yeah, very, that's right. Very common in Turkey. And so that tradition is part of a Sufi path. Other Sufi paths don't practice their con or don't run their congregations that way. They, con they run it in different ways. At LQM, we have practiced uh, our Sufi congregations in accordance with the uh, uh, Bektashi path. At start, today we are a little bit more flexible to other paths as well. So we, we're, we're experimenting in some days members from LQM are more interested in certain paths than others. So we mm. will prioritize or we give them, we, we will give them the advantage to lead that congregation in the path that they think is, is, is mm. interesting to them. Yeah. Yeah. It must be so comforting and so wonderful to know that people can, there's a place, like you said, like some, you know, you, you describe some as being more active than others, but it must be so nice to have mm. a place where you can dip and, you know, dip in and out and come and go or can rely on when, when needed. Um, that must be such a nice yeah. um, feeling to be able to offer that to people. Yeah. But there, there, there are also certain expectations of us to carry out, which we don't uh, on purpose. Sometimes we get approached by other media outlets or organizations expecting us to say something or do something about the, let's say, for example, the Birmingham protests you may have mm. heard of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The thing the is, schools, yeah. Yeah. The thing is, even though, yes, individually we do have an opinion about it, but this is not what LQM was made for. We were not we were not founded to participate in that kind of activism or that kind of, we, we were not founded to go head to head mm. with, with, with other Muslims or with other queer people or with other organizations. So far we've managed to keep a very good relationship with every, with every other organization. And I think in my opinion, I think, trying to to be kind to mm. those communities that strongly disagree with us does better job than than going front to them and 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 saying by the way you're wrong you're being homophobic you I wholeheartedly agree from a kindness perspective obviously I can't speak on behalf of other Muslim people, but from a kindness perspective, from a queer perspective, I wholeheartedly agree. And I actually thank you for doing that. Um, I also thank activists as well. Like I actually, you know, I have mm -hmm. to, um, but I think it's clear from, you know, the information online and things that you talk about um, on Twitter, for example, the things that yeah. you mentioned, I think it's clear that you do come from that perspective of giving space for people to practice. Mm. I'm just thinking about, I'm, I'm going back to isolation now and I'm just thinking how hard it must be living in a, a house or isolating forced to isolate in a space where you can't be open or your family don't agree or accept you for any way um, well i'm not with my family at the moment but if i were i wouldn't think of it that way even though i know they disagree but i wouldn't think of it as uh, as a as a temporary jail term you know like, i wouldn't think of it that and in fact i would i wouldn't encourage anyone especially queer Muslims, I wouldn't encourage them to 
I mean, who am I to, to give instructions? But <laughs> I think that this is, the, this is the best time to see it as an opportunity to start a dialogue. To Queer Muslims may be at an advantage of growing up with a very good diplomatic skill. Mm. And it's times like these when they have to put their diplomacy into practice. So when they're in a closed uh, space with people they disagree with, this is the time to, to test out what the best dialogue looks like or, or how, how a better dialogue can be achieved. Mm. It's only times like these that can allow us to, to put such thoughts into practice. And it will only help queer Muslims get out of it better speakers, better, uh, better uh, people at convincing, um, better communicators with a wider Muslim society, with a wider society as well. And, by, and that's only by starting at home. If, if I can't have a quiet, uh, decent conversation with my mom and dad or my siblings, then how am I expected to, to go out and, and, and preach in the public? Or That's such a nice way so, to look at it. It's such a nice way to break down a, a boundary or a barrier, which instantly jumps to my head. You know, I just literally thought, what, a, what awful situation it must be to be in like that. And that's me not understanding. That's me being quite ignorant to, to what, you know, to what you were saying, essentially. Um, but it's actually such a lovely way to look at it that it's actually a great opportunity to connect and to, you know, learn to communicate mm. and understand mm. and that kind of thing. Um, and also the media is always going to talk about uh, domestic violence during quarantine, but mm. it's also sensational. They will not talk about improved relationships during quarantine, Absolutely. but there are improved relationships during quarantine and they have to be documented as well. Mm. And, how did they improve? What, what made these relationships improve? These have to be documented as well. And Are you yeah. finding any, your relationships being improved? Are you like keeping in touch with your family more? Are you, yeah. I mean, how is like, what's happening at Iftar? Like, do you get to like do a Zoom or a Skype or a, <laughs> how does that yes. work? So a lot of, a lot of uh, queer Muslim organizations, a lot of Muslim organizations altogether, nowadays they are hosting, they're hosting uh, Zoom iftars like uh, Iman, which is probably the largest UK queer Muslim organization. Uh, they were they hosted an iftar yesterday, which I sadly missed, but um, they will be doing it again, and a lot of other organizations will be doing it again as well. But iftar is all about. I mean, iftar is mainly about breaking your fast, right? So yeah, you're just eating in front of a computer if, if you're looking. <laughs> <laughs> it feels different when you're having your iftar in front of a camera than when you're having iftar with uh, with other people. It feels different. Mm. The smell is different. The sound is different. The atmosphere is different. Uh, I don't know how well does it replace an actual iftar. I don't think it replaces an actual iftar at all. But that's the closest that people can get to, to an iftar. Yeah, I guess. If anything, I would say that it's only made us closer with disregard to queerness. For example, when the quarantine started and I was away, I was in the UK while my family was in Oman, um, I realized that my family had 
my family had this undertone of accepting me for my queerness because it's it's such a it's such a pandemic you know what i mean it, they have suddenly realized their priorities and that okay we have a son who is at risk we'll we'll leave everything else behind this whole queerness thing is no longer a par- is no longer a priority now right so that's maybe- my lecturer described it as the great equalizer yes um and in a way i understand um you know obviously part of me wants to say it shouldn't take a pandemic but mm, mm. the other side the other side of me is like very thankful that you know people like your parents for example are able to see beyond um mm. see beyond essentially theoretical norms yeah it changes their priorities and it's necessity uh, what's there's an expression necessity is the mother mm. of invention but if you modify that a little bit then necessity is an equalizer of Absolutely. bad feelings or hatred as well uh, and um, this is what's happened during um, iftar as well for example because in Oman they're holding zoom iftars and today we mm-hmm. are holding zoom iftars as queer muslims in the uk romani muslims and queer muslims in the uk are doing something so alike that 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 surpasses the Mm. the sexual differences and that's another mm. equalizer as well so. it's so nice these realizations yeah it's so nice these realizations especially what you were saying about you know like um the type of islam which is practiced here being different and the way that this islam looks at queer people here differently mm. to the way that aman looks at it for example it's so nice that even in those kind of climates we are able to have common grounds which is that we basically just have to sit at home and eat food on a zoom call and it doesn't matter yeah, what yeah, sexuality yeah. or um yeah. what part of the country or part of the world you're in mm. we're, you're still having to practice um your iftar in the same way so what 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 you what so iftar is what seven thirty, eight o'clock no later than that approximately seven thirty. so there is a timetable and every day it's a different minute but because I'm not that strictly observing, I look at I look outside, and when it's dark, that's when I know I can eat. Shias, for example, they wait for ten more minutes after the sun starts to set, and that's when they eat. Sun, uh, Sunni Orthodox, for example, they would start eating as soon as the sun sets. There's no right and wrong, you know. Like the whole point is when it's dark. Do you feel during fast? Sorry, do you feel during fasting and Ramadan? Do you feel that like what you're doing, fasting? Do you feel yourself coming closer to Allah? Do you feel yourself deepening a connection with God in that way? Yes, but also something else. Mm. Um, for the for the most part, it fosters my connection with society, with with my community. Mm. Fostering my spirituality is something else that maybe one Ramadan, it happens, another Ramadan, it doesn't happen, one Ramadan. What happens in in all Ramadans is that my my relationship with my body and my community is strengthened. So it's a very um, secular way of looking at how Ramadan uh, improves me. but then there is also a spiritual improvement, but that spiritual improvement is not always the same. Some Ramadans is, is stronger. Some Ramadans are, are, are less strong. For every person, it's a different experience. Yeah. I like to see Ramadan as, um, I like to see Ramadan as, uh, as a cultural binder. That's so nice. So when you, 
So when you are when you are indulging or embarking on on a practice that is very much similar to imagine you're in a choir and you're singing the same song with like hundreds of other people mm. that, that feels good right mm. now imagine you're doing the exact same thing but instead of singing you are fasting and mm. you're fasting with 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 a, with, a, with a wide community and like you all start fasting at the same time and break the fast at the same time you eat at the same time and there is this kind of uh, mysterious harmony mm. and, and that feels good no i, I completely understand like like I said, I chant sometimes, sometimes in mass meditation. Mm. It, I mean, there are certain Buddhist um, calendars, you know, points in the calendar that we, that we celebrate together. And mm. there is, there is a harmonious um, joining of, of people and minds and of understanding and, and wanting for a better mm. existence for everyone in those moments. Yeah. You asked me earlier about what the Hadith says and what the Quran says. And I mentioned only about what the Hadith says and that they were, all of them are weak Hadiths. But I didn't answer about what the Quran says. Um, so in the Quran, there's an interesting terminology, which a lot of preachers ignore for some reason. I don't know why. Um, there, is, there is a verse in the Quran that talks about who the prophet's wives should uh, cover up front of. So the, the verse says, uh, Oh Muhammad, tell your wives to cover their, to, co- to cover their um, certain body parts from everyone except their fathers, uncles, children. Um, there's a list r- relatives or a list of kinships with who women should who women don't have to cover up front of and in that very same verse it also includes an interesting terminology called which translates to men who have no affection for women thank god you're gonna translate it i was like okay yeah and i wonder why a lot of preachers who speak badly about queer people ignore that verse because it it talks about queer people in a very positive way somehow for example it 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 doesn't say that queer people are bad it says that queer people can see other can see the prophet's wife's hair can see the prophet's wife so that's what it says about them in a way that's a positive message it doesn't say they should be like punished or mistreated or, or anything. And then there's the story of Lot. The story of Lot in the Quran doesn't say that they were mentioned because they were gay or because they were homosexual. It says that they were mentioned because they disbelieved. And that's a whole other reason than their homosexuality was not the reason for their punishment. It's just, um, it's just strange why... Uh, it's, not, it's strange how in the Quran... Queer people are respected, yet in the hadith they are not. And if you look at those hadiths, you realize that those hadiths are fake. Mm. And unfortunately, politics doesn't work that way, right? Like fake news is or or fake hadiths is not something that they, they that they would address in their in their day-to-day congregations. They will just completely say out the hadith that's what the hadith said full stop the hadith says that um, they're cursed then they're cursed 
you know so how did you how did you come how did you come to learn that they're not accurate or they're fake it's just some a, a little bit of research like instead of reading the hadith from the school curriculum i would go back to the actual book that that includes the hadith collections so remember the names i mentioned earlier bukhari and muslim the, they're the two famous hadith mm -hmm. go to their books the, their their books are called sahih bukhari and sahih muslim and in those books these are like the references these are like uh, where all the hadith were first published and in there mm -hmm. they they assess every single hadith how strong is that hadith how weak is that hadith how how trustworthy is the narrator how untrustworthy and from there you can find find out like majority of the hadiths are weak majority of the hadiths are fake majority of the hadith majority of the hadiths are fake and and weak but they're still there because they contain some moral values like uh, right, okay. some hadiths talk about being a decent person and not cheating for example that hadith is not true is not truly narrated by the prophet but it's such a powerful and good message it's to teach people not to mm -hmm. cheat so it mm -hmm. went on being narrated and it became cultured as a hadith but unfortunately so did those other hadiths that touch on the on on, on the dignity of queer people uh, don't presume hatred like for example don't presume that your community if they, even if they were fundamentally uh, religious or, or very, don't presume that they hate mm. you or that they that they are seeking the chance to hurt to hurt you or harm you, because many of many times these thoughts are projected by the media and not by the reality. That's yeah. That's. I was shocked when my parents were not aggressive towards me. I was, and I was like, "Wait a second! Aren't they supposed to be aggressive?" <laughs> like all this preparation, I, I like invested so much into preparing myself, and in the end, things turned out to be okay. And it just turned out that there was so much in my head, put by the media and put mm. by political parties. What that, was? I mean, what was? Yeah. When did you tell them? I never like told them in one go but um, i kind of made them slowly realize and when i knew that okay this is the time when they truly realized and this is the time when i expect them to 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 react their the reaction was not as bad as mm -hmm. i thought and what did they say they didn't say they didn't tell tell me what to do they rather they rather told me okay then we we're not gonna pressure you into marrying a woman then but that doesn't mean they agree right but the only difference is that i'm no longer pressured into marriage yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. there is still uh, some peer pressure but then again it comes in the form of like social bullying or like jokes and stuff like that mm -hmm. but it's not something that i take seriously do you, have, do you have the same pressures as a gay man then like living in london now with the with the ability, if you want to to marry your partner, do you have that same pressure to get married? Uh, the pressure to get married is not because of where I am, but it's because of the global legal situation. For example, um, even in Oman, like, or or even in the UK, if I if I if I die single, then 
my inheritance, my properties, my... No, no, no. Mm-hmm. If I want to visit my partner in hospital, I have to be legally um, legally in some sort of union with him, right? Just in order mm-hmm. for me to visit him in hospital. So I don't like the concept of marriage as it is today. Anyway, it's, it's rather a legal process. Mm-hmm. Nothing, nothing more than a legal process. Nothing more than uh, population control. <laughs> But um, yeah, yeah, true. Yeah, but it's only in that situation that I do want to get married. I, I want to get married not because I think marriage is is the ultimate romance. No, but but I think marriage serves my best material interests. Mm. I wish we could do this face to face because it would have been a lot easier, which is a lot more, just a lot nicer, a lot more genuine. But I feel like we really covered so much. It's so hard to go back. All I want to say is that we should go out for some coffee whenever this lockdown is over. A hundred percent. I just wish that like other people could join me. Well, I mean, yeah, I know what you mean. Enjoy the rest of your day then. Yeah, definitely. And keep in touch. You've got my number, so just like, text me or call me. Or Thank you so much for listening to this episode today. Honestly, it means the world that you chose to join me. If you liked it, subscribe, and of course, please make sure that you share with your friends. I'd really like you to get involved in the conversation as well. So head over to Twitter or Instagram at LGBTQ Pillars, or you can get in contact at www.pillars.org.uk where you can find out about upcoming events, all our guest profiles and contact me to get involved. And remember, we can't build a home out of broken bricks. We need Pillars. Pillars.